Well, let's join in prayer as we come to think about God's word this morning. Father, we thank you for your grace that is extended to us in so many circumstances, in difficult times. And we thank you for this record of the things you did long ago that give us encouragement today. So we ask that you would encourage us once more as we consider the things that happened to the people of old. In Jesus' name. Amen. If you had the chance to answer the question, what do you think is the greatest problem in the world at the moment? Well, then I'm sure the list you could put together would be a lengthy one. I mean, do you start with COVID and follow the line of health issues? Or the impact of COVID in relation to jobs and the economy? Or do you follow another tangent altogether and try to list all the stories of injustice and discrimination you can think of? I think you get the picture. In spite of all these issues, perceptively, one writer has said that of our greatest problems in the world, regardless of the surface issues we face, is the one he calls instantitis. That is, whatever it is we want, we want it now. We want fulfilment, we want it now. We want happiness, we want it now. We want revolution, we want it now. We want change. We want it now. We want everything as fast as a Big Mac. COVID times have certainly brought out that patience is not something a lot of us have in good measure. And sadly, there's even a Christian form of instantitis. As believers fall for the trap of expecting on earth the good things the Bible promises that we will know in heaven. This kind of triumphal living has a flip side. And that flip side is disillusionment, and that leads to a measure of despondency and a growing cold in our hearts. So there are choices to be faced by God's people in every age, and they are these, to live in the light of God's promises, or to let circumstances shape our thinking and behaviour, to walk the narrow path with patient faith in God's word, or to slip into unbelief through failure to stick with God's word. As we continue learning from the life of the prophet Elisha in 2 Kings 6 and 7 this morning, what we find is largely a record of the failure of God's people with respect to those choices, but also an encouragement that God's grace was not entirely removed from the equation. Let's think about it together under these three headings. First, note in verses 24 to 31 of chapter 6, see how a nation hit rock bottom. In the verses previous to this, God used Elisha to be the agent of rescue and deliverance from the hands of the attacking armies of Syria, with the result that the immediate threat of invasion was averted. But our text shows that this truce on behalf of the Syrians was short-lived. A new assault upon Samaria Israel's capital, brought about a dire and devastating situation for Israel. The Syrians laid siege to the city, that is, they completely surrounded Samaria, effectively reducing trade and agriculture with devastating effect. The text records some specific and rather awful examples of how this method of attack brought with it a slow death for the city's people 
and the length to which they were forced to go in order to live with unthinkable dilemmas forced upon them. Even food with very little nutritional value was being sold for the highest of prices, leading to absolute desperation. So desperate that when the king of Israel made his rounds in verse 26, a woman told him of the awful, horrible agreement she had made with another woman to boil her son and eat him and boil the woman's son the next day and then eat him. Such a plan could never be viewed in any sense as normal. But this drastic and grotesque proposal went against all that the Lord their God had commanded them through the laws of Moses. It was a dark, dark day indeed in the history of Israel. In situations where people are faced with famine, things are bad when hunger forces people to have to eat next season's seed corn but far, far worse if you have to eat your own children. It doesn't even bear thinking about, let alone being the position of having to do it. And what of the king in all this? Well, he seemed to be outwardly in a state of repentance, as seen by his sackcloth underneath. But his words betrayed that his repentance was shallow at best and his response to the plight of his people was anything but what sackcloth implied. Here was the nation of which he was king brought to its knees in the most awful of situations, and yet all the king could determine was light years from the response that Solomon had laid down years earlier in 1 Kings 8, when he had prayed, If there is famine in the land, if there is pestilence or bride or mildew or locust or caterpillar, If their enemies besiege them in the land at their gates, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man or by all your people Israel, each knowing his own affliction and his own sorrow and stretching out his hand toward this house, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and forgive and render to each whose heart you know according to all his ways. For you, you only, Know the hearts of the children of mankind, that they may fear you and walk in your ways all the days, that they may live in the land that you gave to our fathers. Had the king followed God's word and Solomon's example, he could have led the people in true repentance, turning back to the Lord God, and he would have found him willing and able to restore them. But what did he do? He took the name of the Lord God on his lips to curse the one who was God's agent of rescue and blessing, Elisha, blaming the one to whom he needed to turn to for help and promising his swift execution, reminding us that Elisha's rejection was just a foretaste of that which the Lord Jesus would face. Secondly, in verses 32 of chapter 6 to verse 2 of chapter 7, note how unbelief hit a record high. We've seen how a nation hit rock bottom. Now see how unbelief hit a record high. Once more we find out that as God's prophet, Elisha was given inside information about the impending threat against him. Though in the previous verses to this incident, the king was no doubt incredibly grateful for the national deliverance God effected through Elisha. In this instance, 
the tables were turned. And Elisha knew that in the king's eyes, his days were numbered. And so he was well prepared when the king's messenger arrived. And his message from the king, in verse 33, reflected the rampant unbelief in the nation from the top down. The king rightly understood that the Lord was ultimately behind the famine, but his words, why should I wait for the Lord any longer, betrayed a heart of unbelief. Fed up to the hilt with these awful circumstances and the apparent failure of the Lord to act led him to the unenviable position of rejecting the only way out for himself and his people to turn to God in repentance. But that wasn't all. Even when Elisha declared to the messenger, apparently in the presence of the king and his captain, that the Lord was about to act and his actions would be as swift as this time tomorrow, even then those who heard Elisha's words, especially the king's captain, could only but scoff and treat this prophecy with sarcasm, saying, even if the Lord should open the floodgates of the heavens, could this happen? Sadly, this prevailing attitude of unbelief would cause this man to miss God's generous grace towards his people and to the nation, as the next verses go on to tell us. Do you see the problems caused here by their unbelief in God's word? It's so easy to get into this situation as believers. That imaginary list we created before could well be the reason for much of that unbelief that we see in our own lives and in the nation at large, especially in relation to the spiritual decline in our nation that we lament. Unbelief because things take time. Unbelief because there seems to be this continual disparity between expectations and reality. Unbelief because we struggle with living in the not-yet-fully-here kingdom of God all the while anticipating the not-yet-as-it-will-be fulfilment of that kingdom of God. In other words, the stresses of living in between the now and the not-yet, and the patience and perseverance this calls for until all is done and faith becomes sight. Luther said on this, This life, therefore, is not righteousness, but growth in righteousness, not health, but healing, not being, but becoming, not rest, but exercise. We are not yet what we shall be, but we are growing toward it. End of quote. So the process is not finished, but it is happening. This is not the end, but it is the road to the end. All does not yet gleam in glory, but all is being prepared for it. So patience is required. To run ahead of God is to court with danger, as it is to run too slow to catch up with him. It's said of the 19th century preacher Philip Brooks, who was renowned for his gentleness and great patience, that one day a friend walked into his study and found him pacing back and forth, terribly agitated. Dr. Brooks, he said, what on earth is the matter? he asked. I'm in a hurry, he said, but God isn't. How often is that the case with you? Then third, in verses 3 to 20 of chapter 7, 
Note how God's grace met the nation's need. Things were bad in 9th century BC Israel, caused by a failure to trust God. The people deserved nothing from God, but only circumstances that would drive them away from their gods and back to Him. But also in the Scriptures, we find that when things are low, when His people merit nothing, God does the impossible and His promises shine through. As we've heard, Elisha had said that the famine would end the next day, and it did. Elisha's words were true. And so the record of the seventh chapter of Second Kings tells us how the Lord, quite independently of his unbelieving people, had caused the Syrians to hear the sound of chariots, horses, and a great army. And in fear, the Syrian army didn't even stop to pack up, but fled instantly. And as if to underline the, and highlight the overwhelming size of this grace that was shown to the people, the text forces our eyes to rest upon none other than four Israelite lepers camped near the city gates. If ever there was a group of men caught between a rock and a hard place, well, here they are. They had two choices. Well, three, actually. A dying from their disease dying from starvation inside the city, or dying by being slaughtered by the Syrian army outside the city. Theirs was truly a hopeless case, and what's more, they knew that they were in that situation. They knew that death was their only option, and so they took a risk, a calculated risk, but a very real one. They said to each other, look, if we stay here, we're going to die. If we go into the city where there's no food, We'll die too, so let's go over to the Syrian army. If they spare us, they might give us some food and we'll live. If they kill us, then what do we have to lose? Because we're going to die anyway. Imagine something of their trepidation and fear as they approached the army. Imagine being forced by the most drastic of circumstances to have to choose which way you will die. But, when the lepers went to the army camp, they saw what no one else had yet seen. The place was deserted. The Syrian army had fled for their lives, leaving behind everything, their food, their money, their tents, and all their goods. The four lepers were blessed beyond their imagination. One moment they were starving, the next they had more food and drink than they could have ever imagined. They started eating and drinking and carrying off silver, gold, clothes and other things, hiding them as they could, until one of them, with perhaps a pang of guilt, said, Wait a minute, we can't just think about ourselves. This should be a day of rejoicing for all of God's people. If we don't share, what's going to happen when others discover what we have done? Let's go tell the news at once to the king. And so they did. They told the gatekeepers, who reported it to the king. And the king still didn't want to believe Elisha had accurately foretold that miracle. And so thinking it was a trick, sent out the soldiers in their chariots to find out what the deal truly was, only to find that there was a trail of discarded clothing and equipment all the way to the Jordan River on the road out of Samaria for all of 40 kilometres. The soldiers returned to the city and announced the good news to the king 
and the news spread like wildfire through the city. The king ordered the gates opened, and the captain who had told Elisha that God could not do what Elisha had said he would was stationed at the gate to try to keep things in order, only to open the gate and see the food the Syrians had left behind. But no sooner than he had seen it, the multitudes rushed at the opening of the gate to get to the food, and in doing so, knocked him over, and he was trampled to death, just as Elisha had told him that he would see it, but he would not get to eat of it. It's a harrowing story, isn't it? Reminding us of the consequences of unbelief in the midst of such amazing provision. On the one hand, such amazing grace in the midst of the worst of circumstances. Grace despite the rampant and prevalent unbelief. Grace that brought about a great miracle for the people. But what a telling consequence from the darkest of nights before the brightest of dawns. And the result of all of this was this. The people ate and lived again, and Elisha was confirmed again as the faithful prophet of the Lord, and the Lord was confirmed again as wonderfully generous to a people who deserved nothing more than his punishment. The theologian who spoke of God's grace as his great nevertheless was right. You have turned away from me, says the Lord, You have responded to me in unbelief and failed to trust my promises. Nevertheless, I offer you deliverance and rescue. This is the pattern of God's working with his people and we see it supremely in Elisha, whose name means God is salvation, who foreshadowed the one who would be the saviour, Jesus. And so Titus 3 says, at one time we were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved, but when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared in Jesus, he saved us, not because of righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy. So having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Well, what then in closing? What are these verses and what can we conclude about them? Well, let me refer you to the record of a journey that Robert Louis Stevenson, the novelist who penned Treasure Island and Jekyll and Hyde, undertook on a ship in these terms. He wrote, Waves crashed over the ship as it laboured along a rocky coastline. The danger in the air was palpable. One sailor toiling below the waterline could contain himself no longer. In a panic, he stumbled up the stairs to the control room, where he stood frozen in terror. He watched the captain grapple with the controls as he fought to steer the huge ship through the rocks to the open water. The captain looked over his shoulder at the scared sailor and smiled. The sailor smiled back and went back down below deck to tell the crew that everything was going to be all right. When they asked him how he knew, he said, I have seen the captain, and he smiled at me. That story perhaps helps us to understand that the circumstances we see are not the final arbiter of God's love, or his nearness, or his presence. 
something that the king could not see. We may well be able to look back with hindsight and see in Christ revealed to us in the scriptures God's reassuring smile. But that smile will not excuse our faithlessness. We cannot read of the example of God's people here and not take stock. The people here hit rock bottom, and it was due to his people rejecting him in favour of idols. That rock bottom was hit when his people forgot that faith is a prerequisite for pleasing God. That rock bottom was hit when the old paths of righteousness were abandoned. That rock bottom has been hit many times since, and will be again, and can only be escaped when God's people, in true repentance and faith, seek God that his ways, and not our own, be followed and adhered to. Anything less is to court with the danger of heading back to the depths where only God's grace working through faith can get us out of such a pit. So to avoid that, and to head in the right direction, there's a case for asking this. Will you let circumstances shape your thinking and behaviour? Will you follow instead the instantitis of this age? Or will you patiently live in the light of God's promises, promises centred on Jesus, promises that come to you from a generous, gracious Heavenly Father who will graciously fill what you cannot supply, if you would just ask. For the greatest reason you and I have for taking that second option and trusting God and being faithful is that we both know how the story ends. We know that even though the turmoil and the pain of this world will reach never-before-seen proportions, that away down in the back of the book, Jesus wins. And the promises of a new heavens and a new earth with no more sickness, sorrow, pain, tears or death, where righteousness will reign forever, will one day become reality and no longer promises. And so if you are a believer you will know too that whatever circumstances you face, this season is not how it is always going to be. When John tells us in his first letter not to love the world or the things of the world, he gives us this reason, for the world is passing away along with its desires. And then he gives us this hope, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. The wide and the broad road is appealing. It's easier, it's more popular, but its destination is far from ideal. There remains a narrow path that's harder, less travelled, but the destination, though it require patience and perseverance, though it be harder and full of trial, has an outcome that is far, far better. No, Our hope is not to be in this world, for it is nothing but sinking sand, and there is no other solid ground except the Lord our rock. Put away instantitis. Make him your hope today. Put your trust in him. Persevere for the long haul, and find out for yourself. Will you do that? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we read today of your people in peril and trouble, 
We thank you that you came to their rescue. We are sorry that they expressed and evidenced such unbelief from the king down, revealing that though he had an outward form of repentance, there was nothing much to it, no substance. Forgive us, Lord, when we look at our circumstances and think that these just dictate everything to us and we are bound by them. Help us to put our trust in you that no matter what the circumstance, no matter how hard, no matter how difficult, no matter how slow you seem to act, that we will abandon the ways of the world and forego the ways of instantitis, demanding everything now. Help us to keep trusting you, persevere in faith, knowing that you have smiled upon us. And though we were once far off from you, you have done everything you can to bring us back to yourself and will keep us until the very end. So help us to persevere, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.